Ray Hill grew up on a farm, and he took up rowing in college. So he's always been a hard worker, not to mention an early riser. In this edition of the Health Biz Podcast, Ray brings us up to date on his progress at Coravitas. As CEO and chairman there, he's led the company's expansion from a singular focus on a rheumatoid arthritis registry to a broader autoimmune and inflammatory company that has registries, real-world evidence, biorepositories, and patient engagement capabilities. I was partial to the company's former name, Corona, but for some reason, it didn't seem to have the right connotations for the pandemic era. When he's not focused on Core Evitas, Ray continues to row and to cycle. He's also chair of Row New York, which combines rowing and academics for kids who would not otherwise have access. I'm your host, David Williams, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Meanwhile, if your business needs strategy consulting support, please reach out to me at dwilliams at healthbusinessgroup.com. We have experience throughout healthcare and life sciences, including with real-world evidence companies similar to Core Evitas. Ray, it's uh, great to speak with you today. How's it going? Hey, great, David. Good to speak to you too, man. Excellent. Listen, we're going to talk about some exciting news for the uh, company, rebranding and uh, broadening your broadening what you're doing and increasing your ambition. So that's great. But let's. I want to wind it back and start with. Uh, I'm not a psychologist or anything, but we'll start with your your childhood, your upbringing, your edu- education. Give us give us a sense of who who Ray was. Yeah, I was born in '62. I uh, I grew up on a, a family farm. So I uh, had a pretty middle class upbringing, upbringing, excuse me. My, uh, my mom was a nurse. Uh, she worked at a local hospital. My dad was an accountant, but uh, we had a really, uh, a really cool life. So it was like a 10 acre farm. We had uh, a couple of sheeps, you know, some, some pigs. We had, um, you know, a cow and, um, you know, lots of vegetables, things like that. So spent a lot of my summers, uh, you know, chopping wood, uh, doing stuff around the farm, things like that. So that was- uh, Now it's meant to be like a, like a family business or like a hobby or just like a, a philosophy, like a lifestyle philosophy? It was a little bit of a lifestyle and I guess a little bit of a family business. I mean, honestly, farms don't make a ton of money, as you know. So no. <laughs> it definitely didn't pay a lot of bills, but we had some fun. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's a good experience anyway. I know my, my dad grew up as like uh, he says slave labor, like plucking chickens and stuff. That was in an earlier era. Well, but, uh, yeah, we didn't do quite that bad. Yeah, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that was fortunate. I don't think I could quite go that far. Yeah. All right. So then you went you went off to school, Cornell. Yeah. yeah so Cornell undergraduate, and then uh, Duke for grad school. So nice. I um, I started out. I, I was one of these, you know, kind of get interested in a bunch of different things, and so I went in a couple of paths in my career. But you know, the whole farming thing got me quite interested in animal sciences. So I actually started out in animal sciences in Cornell, um, and it didn't quite click for whatever reason at Cornell. Um, so I ended up pivoting halfway and and focused on natural resources. So um, I ended up with a degree in natural resources from Cornell you know, worked a few years in that field and then went back to graduate school and got a master's in environmental management from Duke in the um, late eighties. Got it. Now, when you, when you were in college, I think you were, you were and still are a rower. 
Yeah. Is that right? What was that? What was that about? Yeah. So I was a walk on, you know, I, I don't know, probably like a lot of kids. I got a letter from the uh, the coach and, you know, when you're 17 years old and you get this, you know, nice letter on, on letterhead from the coach, you think, wow, I'm really special. And I think he actually sent it to every kid that was, you know, over six feet and over 200 pounds. And I qualified on both those dimensions. So not sure I really brought much to the party there. <laughs> I was going to say when when you first said that you, you know you got uh, you thought everybody got this letter I was thinking I didn't get one but I'm I'm under uh, I'm under six feet and I'm I'm under two hundred so I, yeah. that's maybe why I didn't get it I got some other letters but not that one yeah yeah but you know look it's something that has um, you know stuck with me for all of my life and I've always sort of thought that you know rowing is a little bit of a metaphor for how to succeed at life you know rowers are those crazy guys that are you know out of five thirty or six in the morning on the water things like that. But it's this really cool combination of, of strength and technique that really makes rowing uh, an interesting sport, I think. That's good. Certainly a lot of people, uh, you know, that have that uh, that background, certainly something you can't just sort of be uh, lazy and just hanging around. You got to you gotta pull your weight, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So now, listen, you've been at, uh, well, I was going to say you've been at Corona for a while, but that's what we used to call it. And now? You want to announce the new company name? Drum roll, please. Yeah. <laughs> Core Evitas. Core Evitas. Excellent. So it sounds like it's a logical progression because you had Cornell, Corona, and now Core Evitas. So it all, it all, what is Duke doesn't make sense in there, but other than that. It makes sense. And, and we've had this history of buying companies that only begin with the letter H. Yeah. <laughs> we've done three all of right. them now. <laughs> Good. So let's come, let's come to uh, the, the new Core Evitas yeah. uh, momentarily. What's what's the origin of, of the company? Co- Corona actually, I think, actually stood for something, right? It's no, like you're, a- you're 100% right. So Corona actually stood for the Consortium of Rheumatology Researchers of North America. And that really is kind of the foundation. We started in the rheumatology world. So we were founded by uh, this fellow named Joel Kremer. And uh, Joel has done a lot for the science of rheumatology. He was one of the guys that was uh, the original researchers behind use of methotrexate, for example, in treatment of RA. And if you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, you probably remember the uh, TNFs, tumor necrosis factor drugs, were just starting to come out. I think Embrel was launched in 98. Umero was launched in the U.S. in 2000. And it was very clear that these drugs were you know, kind of a sea change uh, in terms of treatment. They were incredibly efficacious, but at the same time, there was a lot of concern over black box warnings and, you know, just risk with these drugs. And Joel's bright idea was, gosh, could I get a group of other clinicians, other researchers together, and, you know, could they basically help me track what outcomes we see with these drugs? And so if you go back to 2000, of course, there was no EMR, um, there was claims data and, you know, claims data are called admin data for a reason, right? Exactly. Exactly. Clinically rich, right? <laughs> so Joel's idea was, you know, get a group of researchers together. Um, they're already seeing the patient anyway, so it's not like it's a separate visit. Um, I'll pay the docs to collect this information, but I'll only pay if the data are complete. So Joel started out with a handful of friends, essentially friends of Joel, paying them a modest amount. And, uh, you know, the thing grew from there. And so what's the, you know, I understand why it would be interesting to have that information. You're trying to understand about safety and efficacy and so on. But what's the what's the model of who who pays for that? How does that work? Yeah. So basically, uh, all of our subscribers are pharmaceutical companies today. 
So we pay sites, we pay sites a lot of money, honestly, because, you know, we've got to compensate. It used to be Friends of Joel, and today now we're in eight registries, seven diseases. We're well beyond, you know, kind of our roots in rheumatology. And uh, it really is an economic value proposition now for the physician, right? So the physician makes very solid money working with Corona, and that's, you know, the primary reason that they're involved. Also, it helps them better care for the patient by, you know, looking at key measures that they really ought to be looking at to better understand how to care for these patients. But at the end of the day, it really is our pharmaceutical subscribers who you know, are paying us for the data and in turn allows us to pay, uh, pay physicians. And why is it that, I mean, it's certainly useful and interesting for the pharmaceutical companies to have this data. What, how do they use it? Is it for other sort of drug development for their label for reimbursement competitive what like what, what are the uses for it yeah really good question so what we really differentiate on is the granularity of the data we collect and the longitudinality so if you think about the diseases so david i think you know our business you know we're mostly in autoimmune and inflammatory conditions right so if you think about those diseases um, there are key clinical measures that aren't routinely captured in emr claims or other um, sources of data that really help to inform care. If you're in the rheumatology world, the measure you're most interested in is the CDA score, Clinical Disease Activity Index, right? And that's a combination of a physician global, patient global, and then you do a tender and swollen joint count for 28 joints. If you're in the dermatology world, you might be thinking about the PASI score. So each of these areas where we've built these syndicated registries has these very unique clinical measures. And you go back to you know, kind of Joel's original vision, it was to collect these RCT, he would call it randomized controlled trial quality data in a routine clinical setting. And so gathering these measures really makes us distinct. And back to the model, uh, because we only pay docs if the data, uh, the data are complete, um, our data are, are very, very complete. 95% plus typically is what we cite. So that really makes the data very unique. And if you talk to folks in the pharmaceutical industry who purchase uh, real world evidence, real world sources of data, those are the two factors typically that you will hear granularity and longitudinality. And that really is what kind of characterizes the data we collect. Now to your question, um, our data ends up in a pretty broad range of uses. Medical affairs and safety are the two most common. So medical affairs, we're typically very involved in um, using our data to write abstracts and full-length manuscripts. We've published over 125 full-length manuscripts, and we're well over now 500 abstracts. So we have a team of about 60 uh, PhD and master's levels, biostatisticians and epidemiologists. They're folks who really work with the data. And then we're also very involved in post-approval safety commitments. Um, so if a drug is approved and the EMA or FDA requires uh, a post-approval safety commitment for a drug, uh, uh, Corevitas is often involved in helping to collect that data. And as part of building these syndicated registries, uh, we might be collecting X thousands of patients on a, a particular drug, reporting back to the pharma company about um, you know, what, uh, what we see from the data and things like that. So that's the basics of the model. We've extended it from there into oftentimes work in HOR, some work in commercial and things like that, but metafairs and safety really are the historic roots of, of Corevitas. Now, these registries started off, as you say, uh, really before the dawn of electronic medical record era. There were claims yeah. that weren't that useful. And I understand EMRs don't do everything, but, you know, it, does it surprise you that the registries can coexist would the EMRs and are the, are the EMRs in any way a, a threat to the registry um, approach? 
So, you know, it's a really interesting question and it's something that, you know, I looked at, I've been now at Coravitas since 2014. It was one of the very first topics I looked at, honestly, when I came here. Um, and, you know, reality is that um, these measures are just not collected in the EMRs and you can do all the AI and NLP you'd like on a data set, an EMR data set. But if that measure does not exist, you can't recreate it. So it's not like you can read the physician note, right? If you read the physician note, it will say things like, you know, hand and swelling is improved in the patient, that kind of thing, right? You can't create something that is not there. So, um, you know, will EMRs get to the point one day where, you know, they have 98, 99% levels of completeness for tender and swollen joint counts? Maybe, I, I kind of doubt it because reality is docs are very busy. You know, they, you know, want to get on to the next patient, things like that. So, um, you know, I, I think for the foreseeable future, we feel like we're in a, a pretty good place. You mentioned the term, you know, real world evidence, and that's another term that really wasn't in use at the time that the registries came in. The concept kind of makes sense. Maybe maybe you can explain the concept and, and how what you do fits into the landscape of real world evidence, which, which is not just registries. Yeah, no, no, totally, totally good question. I, I always like to distinguish real world evidence from clinical trial data. So if you think about running a phase three trial, you, you can kind of say you're answering the exam question for the agency, right? You want to collect exactly what you need to display to the agency to prove that your drug should be approved, that you have efficacy and, and the, the requisite safety and that there are health benefits of the drug that exceed the risk, right? So you've kind of answered the exam question. You know, the agency says, congratulations, your drug is approved. And of course, all of a sudden, then your drug is being used in what's called the real world, right? Again, to distinguish from the clinical trial world. And uh, patients using your drug may be less sick. Uh, one of the things we often see with um, clinical trials in rheumatology, as an example, is it sicker patients, things like that. So patients may be sick, less sick. Uh, patients may have comorbidities. Uh, patients may be older. Patients may be younger. All sorts of differences that you see. And so really the question becomes, you know, how are these drugs that are so expensive uh, performing in the real world? That really is, is the focus. And so the term real world evidence really is just, you know, making that bridge going from a clinical trial over to um, when a drug is approved and in use. Now, in terms of where we fit in that landscape, um, registries, syndicated registries as Corevitas runs them is, you know, one of a few ways of uh, arguably collecting data. Um, back to the earlier part of the discussion, the simplest way is claims, right? You know, claims are captured, obviously, for every single patient, but, you know, claims still is largely administrative data. So um, you get information on, um, you know, cost, price, things like that, I guess, cost really of, of the drug and, and other salient things, but you may not really be getting the deep clinical data. Uh, electronic medical records are, of course, a second source of data. And, um, you know, they, they have their place in the world, um, certainly in terms of the data you collect, things like that. And then third, you see a bunch of maybe more specialist data sets. You see genomic data sets. You see companies like Prognos with lab data, for example, uh, social determinants of health, one could argue about, a whole bunch of different uh, data sets. We really focus on diseases where the clinical and safety data are paramount understanding uh, how well these drugs are truly performing in the real world. So for our space, rheumatology, psoriasis, psoriatic and spondyloarthritis and axial spa, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, multiple sclerosis, atopic dermatitis, and then 
the latest registry we're, we're launching is, uh, is a rare disease, neuromyelitis optica. You know, we're relatively unique in terms of the kind of the completeness and the longitudinality of the data. So, you know, it's arguably a messy world in uh, the real world. That's the reality of it. You know, you've got lots of people saying that they have regulatory grade. That's a phrase you'll see on almost every single website. Um, but, you know, when you really start to get down and look at the depth of the data, you'll see quite difference, uh, quite a lot of differences in terms of gaps and things like that. So, Ray, the autoimmune and inflammatory markets are, are pretty large in terms of, you know, number of patients, but in particular, the, you know, the spend on pharmaceuticals is pretty high. Yeah. Um, the really big place, though, in real world evidence is oncology, which mm -hmm. is which is even a lot, lot bigger. Now, my impression there is that there's been a ton of investment, a ton of excitement yeah. and a lot of infrastructure built up. And, and yet you know, I'm not sure those companies are making money. I don't know how much of an impact they're they're really having. You know, is that fair in oncology? And is it the same on the autoimmune side? I think. Look, if you look at oncology, um, you know, several companies have made really pretty dramatic um, progress over the last five years. I mean, obviously, Flatiron would probably be the first company you yep. think from. You know, when they bought their EMR in 2014, and they've done a tremendous around a, a tremendous amount of work around curating the data using nurse practitioners to essentially interpret the note, things like that. I think, honestly, look, real progress has been made there. There's been tremendous progress on the genomic side. You just can't debate that, right? Um, precision medicine has a solid 10 years now of experience, really, in the oncology world. Um, you know, and that's a bit different from autoimmune, honestly. Um, you know, certainly precision medicine has not quite come to the autoimmune world. Um, we've focused on autoimmune and inflammatory diseases largely because, David, the market is very big. There's a number of different diseases. You know, as we look at our model, certainly our model can apply in other areas. Uh, it can apply in oncology. Um, it can apply in a number of other diseases. But we've really kind of tried to stick to the knitting where we know we can do really well and, and we can be, we think, competitively advantaged. So now you, you change the company's name and I'm scratching my head over that because what's wrong with the name Corona? It's a well-known word. It, it actually is a wonderful name and we really like Corona, but, uh, you know, two things. Number one, we're one R away from the coronavirus. <laughs> so <laughs> that was obviously a bit of a challenge for us. And, um, you know, of course, no one really could have predicted the extent and scale of the pandemic. And in the early days of last year, January, February, you know, I think we all were sort of hoping that this would go away. And of course, it hasn't gone away, nor is it going to go away. So that became a, a dominant theme for us. And uh, we collect data now from almost 500 sites across the United States, Canada and Japan. And, you know, reality is, um, you know, our investigators are hearing about this every day, um, you know, where patients, um, you know, might get a little confused because of our name. So that was one, you know, the second uh, and really, you know, ultimately the primary driver for changing our name to Corevitas was really reflecting the growth of the company. Um, you know, we're pretty different from our original roots in rheumatology. We don't want to forget about those roots. Those are, are really, really pretty important to us. Um, but we're now in eight different diseases. Uh, so we've got a much broader footprint. Um, we've done three acquisitions, which we probably ought to talk about sometime here. Yep. So we're just in a, in, a, in a very different place, honestly. And, and we changed the name at this point really to reflect, you know, kind of the growth of the company and, and where we see going. Um, and just to kind of build on the name a little bit, you know, we picked 
core, obviously because of the link to Corona. You know, we didn't want to sort of forget about that. Core also um, indicates that something is central, right? You know, so we do believe we play a central role. Um, it's got a little bit of a, a linkage to the sun with the corona, right? And then Evitas, um, you know, has some linkage to evidence, which is ultimately what we provide. So that's really why we pick core Evitas. It was a pretty interesting exercise uh, for us. I, I never realized how hard it is to rebrand a company. Yeah. And, you know, you start to look at all these names and obviously you have to look beyond just, hey, is it available in the U.S.? You have to look at the EU. You have to look at Japan. So, you know, we, we went through, you know, a lot of different candidates before landing here, but we're really, you know, pretty happy about where we landed. But I like the name. You know, it, it's funny when these things happen. It's not funny, but it's it's can be uh, impactful when when some name takes on some other meaning. I know that, uh, for example, there, there used to be something called the AIDS diet candy. And if you look at the old advertisements you can see on YouTube, it says, you know, I lost weight with the aid of AIDS. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't want that. There were, I think there were a few companies that sounded like ISIS as well. So those were uh, well, ISIS those, pharmaceuticals is, uh, yeah. is, is one example. You're those were a problem. Now, I like the new name, Core Evitas. You know, the other thing that it evokes for me is uh, Veritas. Yeah. So not the company Veritas, but, you yes. know, the, uh, the Latin. Yeah. Uh, for that, so. about that linkage as well. Yes. Yeah. So that's good. All right. So that I so I understand why you have a new new name and presumably there's not going to be. I would be pretty surprised if there's a Core Evitas pandemic. That would be pretty unlucky. I would hope to be <laughs> correct there. <laughs> that would be that would be tough if lightning struck twice in that. You yeah, know, I would really not be happy in that way. <laughs> so, all right. So you mentioned a couple of recent acquisitions, which I which I find quite uh, quite interesting, especially because you know obviously there's some things that are are kind of clear, but then patient experience and patient engagement. How do, how does that fit in? Yeah, so we we started. Maybe I'll take you back a little bit before and get to patient experience, Dave, if it's all right. But we we started back in March of 2019 when Health IQ joined the uh, Coravitas family. We acquired Health IQ, and we really did that for a couple reasons. Number one, it broadened our footprint outside of the United States and Japan. They're based in London. Number two, they have access to a broad range of NHS data sets and very, you probably know, very, very high quality data in general uh, over there that uh, the NHS uh, data sets uh, are, are part of. In particular, they have census data on 304,000 oncology patients. So that is, is really very valuable. And then third, um, we found the team was really excellent at productizing insights. So they've been very, very smart about looking at these data sets and you know, kind of building software as a service uh, products off of those data sets. So Health IQ was really our first move. And then to your point, patient experience, we really saw as a logical complement to the registry business and what we're, we're building at Corevitas. And, you know, the reason I say that is because uh, pharmaceutical companies are, are clearly very invested today in the role of the patient. Um, the role of the patient is central in clinical trials. Um, yet at the same time, I think a lot of pharmaceutical companies realize that, you know, they can't just pay lip service to that. They really need to think about, hey, what does that exactly mean? And how do I design a clinical trial to make it friendly to the patient? And that's kind of easier said than done. And so um, I had met Abby Steele, uh, the CEO of Healthy Vibe, uh, probably four or five years ago, actually. And, you know, we really liked her business, but it was pretty small and she did a great job really growing that business. So uh, we ended up acquiring Healthy Vibe in December of 19. And then the third piece of the puzzle that we put together is in October of last year, we acquired Health Unlocked. 
and Health Unlocked, we put together with with Healthy Vibe. That's why I joke that we can't get out of the H's in uh, our Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so maybe we'll, we'll move on soon. But uh, locked out Honeywell, huh? Yeah, no, I, I think that might be out of our league. <laughs> that's that's probably a strategic diversification the board. I would guess. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but Health Unlocked is is really pretty fascinating. So um, they built the world's largest online patient community. So that's a, a community of 1.4 million members, highly engaged, providing data about their experience with the disease. And so that really gives us this whole continuum from the deep, uh, very robust registry data over to, you know, gee, if you'd like to study 300 patients that, you know, are taking Janssen's medication, you know, for COVID-19 or something like that, we could study 300 patients if you want to study 400 lupus patients to understand their experience, we could study 400 lupus patients. So it really adds, you know, a very nice piece, we think strategically to the puzzle. And so essentially what we built out is we built out really or building out four different business units, the registry business unit, right? Where we have our um, eight registries and seven diseases, the patient experience uh, business unit, which uh, Healthy Vibe and, and Health Unlock contribute to. Um, a play around EMR and claims and specialty data sets, which Health IQ is part of. And then the fourth piece of the puzzle that we're building is biosamples. Um, we had historically done quite a bit of work in the RA space, and we're now expanding that into other diseases. And, you know, back to the whole precision medicine discussion and autoimmune, you can argue about, you know, when and, and how quickly, but, you know, our view is increasingly that you know, over the next, uh, you know, three, five, seven years, we think that precision medicine will be coming to the autoimmune diseases. And we think biorepository combined with our very deep and, and rich clinical data can be a, a really interesting play. So usually think about the pharmaceutical business as being fairly global. Yeah. Um, and yet on the, there's differences, though, on kind of the, you know, data availability and so on that have made the registry business largely U.S. business mm -hmm. um, up until this point. Um, what's your view though? It sounds like you, you're in Japan and I know there's been some, you know, made acquisition in, in the UK, which used to be considered part of Europe in one way or the other, but yep. what's the, what's the, what's the international, uh, expectations there? Yeah. So, I mean, look, we're looking at it. What we've seen is there's a tremendous amount of growth right here in the United States, candidly. Right. So we, we've got a lot of opportunity, um, here in the U S that we'd like to capitalize on, um, we actually have beyond the registry already a pretty global footprint. Uh, the patient experience business works in about 60 countries uh, around the globe. So they do a tremendous amount of work in the EU. Uh, they do a lot of work in uh, China, places like that. So we've, we've got a reasonably global footprint. But, you know, I think for each of these diseases, we're really looking at, you know, the local market dynamics, where the data can be collected and, and really what's, you know, kind of most valuable to build this this fabric of uh, real-world evidence that we're working on. Now, outside of the company, since it sounds like that only keeps you about fifty percent uh, occupied, now that you don't have to deal with that branding thing anymore, you should uh, you should have a lot of time freed up. So, I know you're still into rowing, cycling. What what do yeah. you what are you working on there? Not just for yourself, but I know there's a there's an organization, uh, Row New York, that you're that you're heavily involved with as well. Yeah, yeah I, I still I still row a lot. I, I row in my single, which I enjoy, and you know there weren't many benefits to the pandemic, but I, I must yeah. admit one benefit to the pandemic is generally speaking, Zoom calls didn't start till nine a.m. So six o'clock, I could be out on the water uh, racing with my friends. That was actually really kind of cool. So I I still do a whole lot of that. Uh, and then I've been very involved in, uh, yeah, you mentioned Row New York, which is a, a not-for-profit, obviously, based in New York City. And 
that's a, a very interesting organization where they combine rowing with academics uh, for disadvantaged kids, uh, with the end, end game being get them to graduate from high school and ultimately get them a college degree. So about half of the kids that we serve are first generation Americans, um, you know, roughly 80% are students of color. 100% of our kids graduate high school, which is dramatically higher than New York City, and about 90% get a four-year degree in college. And we find, you know, rowing is, is honestly a sport about discipline, and we find that whole discipline of rowing really translates over to the academic side. And, you know, even starting with a basic thing like passing a swim test, you know, I mean, you know, the kid might fail two or three times, but, you know, he or she eventually passes, and it just gives them a little bit of courage, you know. Then they get in the boat. They learn all of a sudden, hey, I can actually move this eight with seven other people. And it's kind of all working together. And then they think, wow, gee, maybe I can do a little bit better in school. So we've got, it's a very high dosage program. We give kids about a, a thousand hours of rowing and academic instruction a year. So it's kind of like a, a half-time job almost you can think about. And really, if, if somebody's going to be in the program, they've obviously got to build a little bit of discipline, right? You can't blow off practices and forget about your teammates. So so that's been a big focus of mine. Um, you know, we're actually halfway through building a new boathouse on the Harlem River in New York City. Great. And that's, yeah, that's also a really cool thing, I think. So, you know, it's interesting. Rowing used to be, you know, the center of a lot of life in New York City back in the 1800s, and that kind of all disappeared. Uh, but, you know, rowing actually had its start not in Philadelphia, not in Boston, but in New York City. Um, and this will be the first new boathouse in probably 100 years um, in New York City. It'll be the first purpose-built boathouse uh, to serve kids that wouldn't otherwise have access to rowing in the country. Uh, so the boathouse is designed by uh, pro bono by Ward Norman Foster, a very well-regarded architect. And uh, anyway, we're hoping to uh, break ground either later this year or early next that sounds great. Yes, I'm in Boston. We have maybe we didn't invent here, but we have sure have a heck of a lot of boathouses around along yeah. the river. So, yeah, yeah, and you have uh, you have community rowing. I'm actually yeah. up there when I'm whenever I'm up. Uh, you know, we're headquartered in Waltham, Mass. So whenever right. I, I, I try to row there, but uh, you know, it's a little bit of a similar model where you know they do serve kids in the community and things like that. But you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of kids that really need help in New York City, and we try to do our part. Uh, you know, giving them a little bit of help. So that's out in the water and then on land, you're up on two wheels when you have a chance? Yeah, I like to, you know, I'm one of these uh, endurance sports guys. I, I love competing, to be honest with you. It's just part of part of who I am. So I, I do cycle a lot. I do a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, races, cycling. I if you go back uh, 10 years almost, 2011, I, um, uh, I cycled across the United States with my two sons. We raised money for a charity, Water Aid, and... Um, that was really, that was an amazing experience. It's one of these things I honestly didn't know if I could do it, you know, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it was just a, a great experience, met a ton of people. And, you know, it's so interesting to, you know, you fly across the U.S. I mean, how many times have we, you know, probably yeah. at least, right? 50 not times. recently, but yes. Yeah, not recently. But, <laughs> you know, it's just such a different experience to be going down a road. You're hearing the birds in the background and stuff like that. So it was, uh, it was just really really cool on a ton of uh, different dimensions. So yeah, my, my fiance and I cycle quite a bit. We did um, the Gap Trail last summer in, um, that's kind of like Pennsylvania, Maryland, but it's right. a beautiful 150 mile old railroad bed. So uh, we get a lot of enjoyment out of that. That sounds good. And any time for reading, any, uh, any books to recommend these days? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I usually have one or two things, uh, you know, cooking on the book side. So a couple things recently, I've just, uh, just finishing one. I heard about it on, on NPR, actually. It's called First Principles by Thomas Ricks. I don't know if you've uh, run across that. I don't, I don't know that one. I'm learning more and more from my, from my guests, though, but I'll check that right. one out. It's quite interesting. So, um, you know, he really was on the path of, you know, what did our founding fathers learn from the Greeks and the Romans? And he actually wrote this book after the 2016 election happened. And he's like, wow, you know, could the founding fathers have really truly envisaged something like that? So it, it really digs into, excuse me, Washington, Jefferson, Adams and, and Madison and, and really looks at, you know, as I say, the, the Greek and Roman influences. And you know, a lot of it, um, a lot of it is about the role of virtue, you know, and if you go back to Washington's past, it's very interesting because he's obvious he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a, a very educated man, honestly, right? I mean, he didn't go to college, things like that. He was mostly self-taught. He didn't speak Latin, which was a, a sign of, of education, of course, at, at that time. But, you know, he was a foremost example, really, of, of the role of virtue uh, in government. And so, that was really a pretty cool read. He makes a lot of suggestions about, you know, some of the challenges we face today. He talks about campaign finance reform, you know, uh, kind of uh, addressing some of the checks and balances and challenges we have there and the outsized power of the presidency. So that was that was a pretty good one. And then another one I read uh, was a book on Mozart, which uh, I'm not, you know, a big classic music, classical music opera person, but it really was a fascinating read to learn just about something that I knew almost nothing about. And uh, that was really very interesting to, you know, kind of learn about the, you know, kind of what was the the message behind the music and then listen, you know, to a few pieces and, and get kind of a little deeper there. No, that sounds, uh, sounds pretty good, like a pretty rich and full life. And I guess it'll be a drag once you have to get back on the road, flying around and all that, but you'll still hopefully have some time for the, uh, for the boat and the bike. If yeah. Not the book. Hopefully so. Hopefully. Yeah. So now I know I got to go out and invest in all these, uh, H companies since, uh, they're right in your, right in your pathway to be hoovered up, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good. Well, listen, Ray Hill, chairman and CEO of core Evitas, formerly known as Corona. Thank you so much for your time today on the health biz podcast. Great. Thanks, David. Take care. It's been a ton of fun. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.